All right. So let's get started. As always, the views of the speaker are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of Sons of the Revolution in the state of New York or its Francis Tavern Museum. This lecture in particular is based on a work of historical fiction created by our author, Ginny Burton. Let me introduce you to Ginny. Um, she has lived in Cincinnati most of her adult life. She is a graduate of Edgecliffe College and has taken courses at Oxford University and the London School of Economics. She taught high school for 16 years and has worked for the Washington Commission of Humanities and in Public Relations. For the past 17 years, she has also been a volunteer docent at the National Underground Railroad Museum. Ginny has written three award-winning books of historical fiction, and we're going to be talking about one of her books tonight. Um, so I'm now going to turn it over to you, Ginny. Please come up here and join me. Thank you so much. Can everybody hear? Okay. Um, first of all, I want to say how very happy and privileged I am to be here at the place where George Washington said goodbye to his officers. Um, it's, it's such a wonderful spot here in New York, and uh, I am very grateful that I was asked to come. But back to a little bit about my background, I've, I've always written something. And after retirement, I had more time to write, and I jumped into uh, writing books seriously with uh, a poetry book, um, some, some uh, Cincinnati history books, and some children's books. And then um, right after I retired, I was approached by the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center to become a docent at the Freedom Center, a uh, volunteer docent. And jumped in and did that, and had terrific uh, training. It was really, really good. And now 17 years later, we still are learning a lot. But one of the things that I was so intrigued by is I learned a great deal about slavery and the footprint it left on our country. I was intrigued by Washington and his role in the system, but I was dismayed to learn that there's so little documentation about the enslaved themselves. We don't have primary sources are very sparse and the enslaved thoughts and feelings are rarely recorded by the slaves or the owners. Even the slaves buried in the cemetery at Mount Vernon have no identification. It's just one big flat, no headstones, just one burial ground for the slaves. So it gives you an indication of how they felt about them at that time. However, in doing some of the training at the Freedom Center, I came about uh, upon Ron Cherno's book, Washington Alive. And I heard about William Lee. And I thought, who is this guy? I haven't heard about him at all. So I began doing research and there's very, very little. It, and then I began really getting more interested in it and thinking, you know, if we do not attempt to describe the enslaved history and how they lived and what they thought and what their 
problems were and what their ambitions were, then we make them silent and they're not there. So I thought, you know what? I, I think I'm gonna get into this. I'm gonna write a book about the enslaved, but I'll have to make it fiction because there's so little primary sources for the slaves. But now I had a, a character, William Wade, and another big character, Washington. So in looking at all that, I thought, how am I gonna construct this and contain it? Because Washington, there's lots of stuff about him, but very little, as I said, about Wade Lee. So I decided that it would become fiction, but I would keep it to the last three days of Washington's life and, and then go from there. And once after I decided to do that, I was really hooked. So I learned a lot about Washington and um, I learned a lot about lots of historical events. So with that background that I was going to do this, manage it this way, then I could begin. And I would look at Washington at one time of the day and what William Lee was doing the other time of the day to contrast their lives, which also was a good way to do that. But um, back to William Lee and Washington. I discovered that Washington was 37 when he bought William Lee. He bought William Lee and his brother for 150 pounds. Uh, he thought he, he looked sturdy, he said, and compact. And he took him with ropes around their wrists back to Mount Vernon. He discovered that William Lee, at that time they called him Billy Lee that Billy Lee was also a wonderful horseman as, as Washington was. Washington was raised with horses, could do a lot of things with horses and so could William Lee. And so he made William Lee his valet. And he also made him the head of the fox hunt. In other words, he was at the one who called all the dogs and carried all the dogs what to do. Sometimes William Lee and, and uh, Washington would ride out together just to be riding. And they became as close as you can be between master and slave, I think, from what I found. It wasn't a real, real friendship, but it was very close. And so um, William Lee becomes head of the fox hunt and he, he rides with Washington all the time. And then the revolution happened. And as his valet, as Washington's valet, William Lee carried his, rode with him through every revolutionary battle, carried his, his spyglass, slept with him in the tent, in the back of the tent, combed his hair, shined his boots, carried important papers. He was by him the whole time, and hence the title for the book, By His Son. These, these periods were um, very interesting. And, and, and I discovered that William Lee was with Washington um, when he crossed the Delaware. But a good reason, because William Lee could control those forces that had to get into those boats and into that icy river. 
because he was a wonderful horseman and he could take care of him. He was also with him at Yorktown, which we'll get to in a minute. But he was, he was very, very close to him. So when Washington uh, came back, we're going to the opening of the book, he came back to Mount Vernon after he retired from his second presidency. He came back in 1797. He was so glad to get home. By this time, William Lee, though, had fallen and had broken both of his knees. So Washington uh, gave him a special job of fixing the slave's shoes, the other slave's shoes. So he became the shoemaker on the plantation. But Washington would also often come in to see him. So one day when Washington, this is 1799, Washington is going to go out and look at his fields, all his fencing and slaves and whatever. And it was snowing really hard. And I, but that didn't bother him. He'd been through all kinds of weather. And he kept at it. And when he came home, he saw that uh, there were not any there for no, but there was a few people there for dinner. And he didn't take the time to uh, fix his cell phone. No. <laughs> he didn't take the time to change his clothes. And he sat at dinner in wet clothes uh, in deference to the guest. And then the next day, he started to get sick, but he didn't pay any attention to it. Now, at the same time, we're gonna look at what William was doing. He's remembering what it was like to be sold uh, to, to Washington. And he's remembering that they came, he was uh, part of the Lee estate. That's probably where he got the last name. And the widow was in money trouble and he had to sell slaves. And so he remembers being bought that day. He remembers that everybody who came there was like a big fair. They were coming here to buy enslaved people. They had great dinner. Uh, they, it was like a town meeting. And he, William Lee remembers, not for him, and so when he and his brother were bought and he was put in a cart, um, he then remembered passing his mother that he would never see again. And they were not allowed to say goodbye because that made it too emotional. He remembers things like that. Another thing he remembered is um, that the geese were flying south for the winter. It was a, it was a fall day. And I have a little aside here. In starting all this, I found Mary Thompson and Don Bonner at, at Mount Vernon. And they helped me. I bet I talked to them twice a day for a year. They are so versed in Washington and other things about it. But they were fantastic. But during the, then COVID hit and Mary was going to read my manuscript, but she didn't have time. And she finally did. And uh, she sent me several pages of corrections. But one of the corrections was, 
where you know the geese don't fly south for the winter. They just go to the Chesapeake. <laughs> I had no idea that that, that, but it was little things like that that she caught. So anyway, William is uh, thinking about uh, being sold as a slave and, and then how he got to be uh, Washington's valet. So um, then Washington has a um, flashback to Yorktown. And so does William Lee, because they had different roles. Um, I want to read to you a little bit about Yorktown that I discovered that um, I can find it. Wait a second. Where did it go? I'm sorry, I, I misplaced my paper, but I will, I'll get to it in a minute. One of the things that William Lee remembers is that as they approached Yorktown, they could smell the stench of horses, dead horses. The British had pushed 600 horses into the river and then shot them because they didn't want us to get their horses. And both Washington and William Lee were very disturbed by this because they were both horse lovers. So um, they, re they and, but Washington remembers the day when, um, when at Yorktown, when there was surrender by Cornwallis and he remembers the military part of it. Washington, William Lee remembers the stench of the horses, seeing his other enslaved people being sent to the woods because they couldn't, the Brits couldn't uh, feed them anymore. They were also sent to the front lines and given um, smallpox, hoping that those slaves would be killed or, or bring it to the Americans. Um, so there were an awful lot of that little kind of thing in contrast to what they were reading. So anyway, back to the story about Washington. So he, that, that, that night he coughs a lot and he comes down two stairs and says he's going to go outside and she says, no, you're not. Martha, she, Martha says, no, you're not. You're not going to go outside tonight. You shouldn't be doing this. And so Finally, he goes up to bed, uh, coughing, and he wake, he awakens Martha in the middle of the night and says, uh, do we have any of that syrup I usually use for my cold? And she said, don't get up. And then he said, don't, don't get anybody up. I'll be all fine. I don't want to bother anybody. But by the morning, he could hardly breathe. And he had what today they call epiglottis. Epiglottis. It's the closing of the throat. He couldn't even um, swallow his saliva. And they brought in three or four doctors, uh, one of whom had been with him in the Revolutionary War. Another, and of course, then they began to ble bleed him. 
and they say that they bled 40% of his body, which of course led to the death. Uh, and during this confusion, Washington says to Martha, uh, bring me my wills. There's two wills in the desk downstairs. He, she brought him the wills and he threw one into the fire and we'll never know what was in that will, but kept the other will. And so um, Washington dies and his last words are tis well. And at that time then, Tobias Lear was living in the, in, at Mount Vernon. He was Washington's secretary and he wrote everything about this death scene. He kept Washington's papers, but he wrote everything that everybody said. So most of this death, death scene comes from his writings. It, none of that is fiction. And so when he dies, um, there is one will left. So I called uh, Mount Vernon and I said, how do I get a hold of that will? And they said, it's in the Fairfax County Courthouse. I thought it was in some big gold frame somewhere. So I called the Fairfax County Courthouse and I said, can I have a, a, a copy of that will? And they said, sure. All of a sudden on my computer, there's the copy of the will. And the will, we'll get to that in a minute, but it was extremely interesting because George Washington in his will one of the first sections, he frees William Lee. And he's to be freed the moment Washington dies. And William Lee, I always wondered, did he know it or did he not know it? He also gives him a pension for his life. He can stay at Mount Vernon if he wants. And he, he can have all the benefits of living on the plantation. Later on in the will, he flees, he frees his slaves. Now he can't free Martha's slaves. George Washington married one of the richest women in the country. Martha had been married before. She had four children, two of them died and she brought two to the marriage. She also brought about 250 enslaved people. However, they were called dower slaves. That means that Martha could not free them. By the Virginia law, she didn't really even own them. She had control of them. But if she died, then those slaves would go to her husband's family's relatives. Now we've got a problem. Because if Washington frees his slaves, and the, that slave, maybe a male, is married to somebody who's a dower slave. Then you've got the man who's free and the dower slaves who are not. And those dower slaves will be distributed among the Custis family. So there, then you know Arlington Cemetery? That was one of the Custis's homes at the time. So now they get sent from Mount Vernon to Arlington. 
or they're separated. And of course, the biggest worry of any slave family is are they going to be sold and separated? And where do they go? And once they're sold, it's very hard to find out where they're going. So I'm jumping up here a little bit, but um, when that happened and Martha read the will and everything, she discovered that she might be in a little trouble because there's slaves there that know that they're gonna be freed when she dies. So there's some question if maybe somebody would like buy Martha because so they could be free. So she called Bushrod Washington, Bushrod, I'm sorry, it's not Washington, to her nephew to come and he said, just free them all now. You don't have to wait till you die. Just free them. So by 1800, they were all free. The Custis slaves had to go to the Custis family, but all of Washington's slaves were free. He also left money for them to be taught to learn to read and write and to bring up the young ones to make a, be able to have a job. So I, that will is so interesting because he did it all by hand. Of course, in those days that was, they did, but he had a wonderful uh, handwriting ability and uh, is ab able to, he goes on and on. I was going to leave the will out of the book, but as I kept reading it, I thought, this is so interesting. And I thought, I'll just cut that out. Then I think, no, no, I can't cut that out. So the reaction I get from people, some people say, I love the will. Other people say, Ginny, that will was too, too detailed. I couldn't do the will. But at the end of the will, and I think this is so interesting, he signs that he's going to sign it. And he says, in witness of all, and each of things herein contained, I have set my hand and seal this ninth day of July in the year 1799, which would be of the Lord Jesus Christ, and of the independence of the United States, the 24th, which, yes, <laughs> he was still so proud of this great experiment that was going to happen. And um, so I think you'll find, if you read the book, the will very, very interesting because uh, it, it just, he was such an interesting man. But I want to read to you from when William knows that uh, George is dying. His brother, his brother comes in and he says, uh, I'm not sure, his brother is saying, referring to Washington. At this, at this point, said Frank, word is happy they've tried molasses, sage tea, bleeding. Nothing seems to bring him relief. He can't breathe or even swallow. Caroline tells us it's gruesome to watch. I must go to him, said William. I was close to him in the war, and I was able to see what he needed before he even knew he needed it. Help me over to the mansion, Frank. I don't want to slip in the snow. Finding his tattered coat, William slipped into it and took the crutches Frank held for him. Together they left the slave barracks and turned toward the mansion. 
It was winter dark outside as William looked up toward the bedroom where his master lay. He could see candlelight flickering in the window and smell smoke coming from the chimney. And in the distance, he could hear hounds barking and donkeys braying from the stable area, all oblivious to what was happening in the big house. He hobbled toward the back door and stood at the bottom of the stairs that led to the bedroom. With the help of Frank and all the strength he could muster, he slowly made his way up the steps. Sweet Lips, you know who Sweet Lips was? That was his dog. And I didn't know that till I came to this museum and read that he had a dog, Sweet Lips, and I thought, Sweet Lips, he has to go in the store. Sweet Lips, who recognized him as an old friend, came forward with tail wagging, but less enthusiastically than usual. Hello, my old friend, said William. I see you are on guard, good soldier. Answering Frank's knock, Christopher was surprised to see William. Sweet Lips and I need to see the general, said William, with some authority. Christopher was startled, but did not object, since Mrs. Washington was not in the room at the moment. She didn't much like dogs in the house. It would be all right for Sweet Lips to enter. The hound went straight to Washington's bedside. Under the bed, said Washington, quickly, the lady will be back soon. General, sir, I'm here, said William, right close by. I see you, knew you need a little tending to. Molly, could you bring me a warm cloth so I could wash his face and pull back his hair? Washington smiled as he heard William's voice and extended his hand. William stood straight and saluted Washington and saluted. Washington returned the salute and William took his hand. It was not a dry eye in the room as enslaved and free watched two men who for different reasons had depended on each other. Two men who had found mutual respect in a world where that rarely happened between master and slave. Deep and lasting friendships are forged on the battlefields and this one was strengthened again and again through setbacks and discouragement. William, I die hard, but I feel I'm nearing the end, gasped Washington. William washed the general's face and generally dried it. He combed his hair, straightened his sheets, and plumped the pillows. And as night set in, a respectful quiet filled the room, broken only by the crackling fire and the wind blowing around the corners of the mansion. Gentle dear tears ran down William's face as he once more saluted his general. Frank came forward and handing him crutches said, William, I think it's best that we go now, it's time. The two men descended the stairs and walked slowly into the dark cold night. Now, this last part, I did make up, but I think it's based on probability. And that's what any of the fiction in here is based on probability. You can't just reach and make something up. But I'm sure that there was an opportunity for William to, um, to go see Washington. So what time it was seven o'clock and I wanted to show you some of these um, slides. Oh yeah, okay. So, this one? Yep. Yep. 
Okay. Is it So, um, this is how we got the, the title, but this is by John Trumbull, and thank the Metropolitan Museum of New York for public domain. We didn't have to pay any of it, anything for this picture, um, but the original picture, which you kind of saw in the front, William Lee is in the back, but through modern technology, we could bring him forward, so he's by his side, which... Uh, worked out pretty well. This is the uh, study uh, at Mount Vernon. And if you can see at the top where the white thing is, that's a fan that Washington invented so that he could pump the pedals and also hit the fan. He made that room for himself. It was his inner sanctum. And that's where he did a lot of his work. Now, <clears throat> Um, he also remembers during when talking with William Lee that they had passed a sign like this 30 choice Virginia born slaves, consisting chiefly of boys and girls from 14 or 15 down to the ages of two or three years, credit will be given. Which is just another indication that children were sold, taken from their families, and sold to who knows who. Um, now he read that to William, and of course, William as a slave could not say a whole lot, but his tears were there. This is from the Virginia Gazette. These are the slave quarters at Mount Vernon, and these are the men's slave quarters, separate, of course, from the women. Um, but these were the people who worked around the mansion. They weren't out in the fields with the other slaves. And this lovely picture I found here, here, right here at this museum. Um, if you see the dogs down in the front, and this is William Lee, it's the only uh, picture of him that I could find, although it's not based on a photograph or anything, and it's pretty much later. But he's actually black, which I never have been able to find a picture of him except here. So, um, but that's him leading the fox hunt before the war. Also, this is the kitchen at Mount Vernon, and this is where there's a conversation in the book about William Lee and the other slaves talking about the fact that during the war, the Brits came up the, uh, the Potomac, and they sent word to Washington's slaves that if they joined him, they'd be free. 17 did join and join the Brits. And the conversation in the kitchen here is about whatever happened to them after the war. Did they come back? Did they go to Canada? Were they freed or not? Because very often the Brits decided not to free them, even though they, they had said they would. But the fun thing about this is Washington loved dogs. And I called Don Bonner at Mount Vernon and I said, uh, can we put a dog in there? And she said, you want a dog? <laughs> dog. <laughs> so, and they, they were just wonderful about it. Now, this picture is actually crossing the Delaware 
These are all in the book, by the way, the illustrations are all in the book. Um, so, you know, the famous picture of crossing the Delaware. Well, this is at the back end of that picture and brought up forward. So you can see the horses and you can see the people getting ready to go across. Now, you know, this book, this picture of crossing the Delaware was painted 73 years after the Delaware. So it's not terribly accurate, but, but it gives us a good idea of what William Lee might have been doing on these boats, trying to keep these horses in check to get to, get to the other side. And that's another close-up of it. And, and I had looked at this picture for years and never seen all this background detail that, it, that is there. Now, as I told you, um, William was made the repair, shoe repair man. And these are his tools at, at Mount Vernon. Now, this is a starry, starry night. Uh, there was some quote, thinking it came from Washington at the night when the Battle of Yorktown was won. And it was a beautiful night and everybody was celebrating. Now this is the key to the Bastille. Washington in his later life became more and more against slavery. And he had al always been like the godfather to Lafayette and John Lawrence. Now Lafayette, who came from France, he was only 25. And Washington made him one of his officers and kept him kind of under his cloak. Lafayette went back to uh, France and the Bastille happened. I mean, the French Revolution happened. And he sent George this key to the Bastille. Now, Lafayette had always been against slavery too and was always trying to influence Washington to end slavery. So, um, that's right there at Mount Vernon now. Now this is the, the death scene. And um, these are the, the doctors in Martha and the um, Martha's granddaughter. Um, he was laid out in the uh, dining room and I called them at Mount Vernon and I said, could we get a little candles in there? <laughs> sure. So they put candles, they had done a re, um, not a reconstruction, reenaction of his funeral. So they have all these pictures. And this is the funeral from the, this picture from the reenaction. Again, Don Bonner came to this, came as I said, it was snowing that day. She said, you want snow? You got <laughs> snow. <laughs> so now this is a picture of the will. Um, and, and you can see all his distinctive handwriting. And here is when he frees William Lee. And to my mulatto man, William, calling himself William Lee, I get because he asked to be William Lee. He didn't want to be Billy Lee. I give immediate freedom, or if he should prefer it, on account of the accidents that have befallen him, and which have rendered him incapable of walking or of any active employment, to remain in the situation he now is. Whoops, I have to go back. I did something bad. Not like that. Oops. Well, there's only one more picture after this, so that's okay. Um. 
Thank you. And he signs it with his seal. Um, now, that's the one where he says, and of the United States, 25. And then this is just a picture about free at last because all the slaves that were free. But I found it difficult. And, and I think anybody living in the 20th century that's looking back at these years and trying to feel what these people were going through, you have to give a lot of respect to the people and what they were going through and hope that what you're saying really was close to what they were going through. In other words, I was trying to get the feelings of the enslaved and what life was going to mean for them after Washington died, during Washington, what kind of work they did, and all kinds of things like that. <gasps> nope, didn't do that. Okay. So I think, is this right for questions? Is this friendly? Okay. Yeah. Uh, everything you talked about was interesting, but I, was, I would love to know if you did some research on what happened to Mr. Lee after uh, he remained, yeah, he remained at the plantation and uh, as a free he, man, as a free man, but everybody wanted to see him. People started coming to visit the plantation to see where George lived, and he would tell the stories of the revolution. So he stayed on with his pension, and and uh, he was fine. And his family was he didn't have a family. He had a girlfriend. But Washington didn't like her very much. <laughs> and that's all we know, because he had a girlfriend and it didn't, he never married her. So he didn't have any children. That we know. Yeah. I enjoyed your presentation very much. Thank you. Uh, well, I have a question uh, about perhaps the legality of what was going on. Uh, you had mentioned that Washington married a widow and that. I would assume that Mount Vernon was her property. And no, Mount Vernon was not her property. Washington, Washington inherited it from his brother. Oh, I see. Okay. She did have a, she had a, 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 there was a Custis estate. She got a third of her husband's properties. Oh, I moved out of the camera. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Hello, Sue. Um, <laughs> um, but it was a great deal of money, great deal of money. And both of them, both Martha and Washington, did not come for money. I mean, big money. Uh, Washington, they were satisfied. They were, they had a, a big plantation. Um, Washington's father died when he was about 10. And Washington inherited 11 slaves at, at age 11. He inherited 11 slaves. But Martha, married this very rich man, had four children by him, two died and two were left, at which she brought to the marriage. Patsy, the daughter, died of epilepsy at very young age. The boy, Jackie, died at Yorktown. He wanted to be with his, be there. And Washington didn't want him to, get a little trouble with Jackie. But Jackie uh, got camp fever and died. So by that time, then they had no children left. So they took Jackie's two two of his children. Then they brought to Mount Vernon and raised them there. Does that answer your question? 
yes. Okay. Thank you. Anybody else? Yeah. Yeah. Just reflecting back on George Washington, uh, I get the sense that you admire him, and I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about what you most admire about George Washington. He was a very, very good man. He was. I kind of fell in love with him. <laughs> just, not, not really. I mean, of course not. But I, he was always so remote to me. You know, he's very. Not like he'd go out with the boys and have a drink. I, I just always thought he was too perfect. But he had, he had a wonderful presence. He believed deeply in what he was doing, and he, when he got to farm, he would farm right with the, he'd get off his horse and just join other people doing work. He um, was good to people. Uh, I think it was wonderful that he took these grandchildren in. He'd never had children. And, uh, and then he believed so much in this experiment and that he turned down the UK. That was the best, the very best. I don't know what he'd be doing today. <laughs> As we drove over here, we were talking, and I said, what if they could come back, Jefferson and William and Hamilton, look at cars and airplanes and boats and cell phones, and what would their answer, or not answer, what would they talk about? Does that answer enough? Yeah, thank you. Okay, anybody else? Yeah, so uh, Washington died. Martha was still living. Yes. Did she continue living at the, at the Matt Vernon? She, she would not go back into their bedroom. She went to the third floor where uh, Jack, well, one of the grandchildren was. And uh, she did not go to the funeral, as far as we can tell. Um, she stayed there with her granddaughter and watched it from a window. Um, but she died about, I think it was like four years after Washington died. But then I have the scene about the will because he had named all his nephews as, uh, what do you call them? The, the people who make the, the trustee of the will, right? Yeah. And uh, they were all her nephews his nephews and her nephews. And so, so I, this is where the fiction part comes in. I know that they met to decide what to do about the will. But I thought, so they read the first thing about freeing William Lee and they, then the fiction comes in. So I say that she says to Frank, William's brother, go get William and bring him up here. We have something to tell him because he's a free man now. And so that's where that comes. But you can imagine that happening, can't you? I mean, it, it, so instead of saying, so they looked at the will and um, that's that, what were some of the things that happened that meant something to each one of them and so on? So, yeah. And so how many years were it was? Uh... George Washington married to Walker. I think it was 40. I'm not so quite sure. Right? I think it was 40. I have it in there. I think it was 40 years. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. 
So you mentioned about Lafayette and um, the, the Bastille and that Lafayette was against slavery and very close to Washington. And yes. Also, I believe, so the same thing about Hamilton. How did Washington justify, excuse me, justify passing slaves in, in what was now the new free country? Of course, that's a good question. I mean, and we don't really know the answer. I think one of the answers is that as pres the first president of the United States, if he freed his slaves, the South would not be happy. That their president freed slaves. Um, there were only two out of the first 11 presidents who did not have slaves. So this was, this would have been a big thing. And he, he really did, he struggled with it because he was thinking about doing it. He also worked, I mentioned John Lawrence. John Lawrence was related to the Lawrence family in Charleston that had one of the biggest slave trading uh, businesses. They had huge rooms where they would keep the slaves as they got, came in uh, and John Lawrence was the son. And he kept saying, we can't be in this fight for freedom if we still have slavery. And he kept saying that to Washington. Yeah. And there's one quote from Washington that says, I can clearly foresee that nothing but the rooting out of slavery can guarantee the continued existence of our union by consolidating it in a common bond of principle. And he was right. And so 165 years later, we have to fight a war about it. 100, no, no, 65 years later. I'm sorry, 65 years later. Yeah. So he, he struggled with it. And I never could find where he, so except he, that is very clear, where he so says we have to get rid of it or it's going to hurt our country. So he did, he did write that. Yeah. And then, you know, he would do things like he would not sell uh, separate a family if he was selling his slaves. But he would, if they were pretty bad, he'd send them down to, the, to uh, the Caribbean, where if you're a slave in the Caribbean, you have about four years left to live because work is so hard. And so dangerous, and that's the worst place they wanted to go. And he did that to some of his slaves. Yes, to some of it. He was he could he could be a hard taskmaster sometimes, but I'm not sure at what age that happened. Because as you see him age, you see him change his whole demeanor about all. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. First, what was it like to work so closely with Count Vernon on um, that research? Um, I can't say enough about them because they, they were just so helpful at all times. Um, one of the funny stories is um, I went to meet Mary um, Thompson, who, who knows everything about George Washington. And any book you see about George Washington, in the acknowledgments, she's acknowledging something. And I'm just this little, I'm not uh, Ron 
cheer now. <laughs> I'm just this little person. So we went to see her and I didn't know, I thought the library was just a, a public library. No, you have to have a password. You have to have an appointment. And she came out very unassuming. Yes, come on down to my office. We get in her office, it's about 10 by 10 and it's filled with papers. And I said, um, I'm having a little trouble with the will. And she said, the will, and pulls it out of the head. She's just wonderful uh, and as far as details go, the thing, many things, and very accommodating to a little nobody. Um, so that was, it was, the whole thing was great and I wanna go back again. Now, if you went to Mount Vernon about 15 years ago, there was very little about slavery, but they've changed and they have a lot more than they did. And they are working on the graveyard to see if they can find remnants of these people that were enslaved and buried without names or anything. So that, that part has changed a lot. It was great working. I can't say enough good things. Yeah. Uh, one more. Uh, what was your favorite thing that you learned uh, part of your research? Favorite thing I learned? Hmm. I think I learned of the bravery and the steadfastness and the resilience of the enslaved. That they overcame some of this not always, not always in a good way, but they were so persistent and courageous um, that I think it just reinforced in me what we've been saying at the Freedom Center in Cincinnati, the Underground Railroad Freedom Center, about um, the lives of the slaves. Does that answer it? Okay. Any is, do we have time or do we, what? Is there any final questions? Other All right. Thank you. <laughs>